And so, yeah, so today's speaker is Jeremiah. Uh, so he's an executive security consultant. So he's a consultant from different companies. And the talk, uh, today's talk is about compliance. So the title is From Compliance in the Classroom to Compliance uh, on the Street. And Jeremiah will explain to us the challenges that uh, organizations face when they, they, they want to obtain uh, different security certification. Okay, so let's thank the speakers and let's start with the presentation. Perfect, Antonio, thank you very much. And thank you very much for the opportunity to join your classroom. Thank you students for uh, attending here today. Uh, my name is Jeremiah Salberg and I am a cybersecurity professional that has been working in this field for over 20 years. And so I hope through today's uh, presentation, uh, maybe 30, 40 minutes long, um, we'll be able to cover some really important lessons that I've gathered over the years. Uh, when you get into, you know, you're learning, you're learning about information security, you're learning about systems, you're learning about technology. Those are all very important foundational aspects. Um, and some of you are going to grow up and not grow up, you're already grown up. Some of you may uh, one day become a, a consultant or work in the compliance field. Compliance is a, a subcomponent of the information security space. Um, you know, you'll, you'll have to deal with different challenges out there. And so uh, each one of the, the lessons that I'm going to talk about today stem from some sort of challenge that I had uh, out in the field or a challenge that one of my coworkers may have had. And so I'm hoping that, uh, like anyone, you can learn from someone else's issues and challenges and, and hopefully make it a little bit easier uh, for yourself in the future here. So uh, thank you very much for tuning in. Um, I think we do have a Q&A function down at the bottom. Um, I, because I'm screen sharing, I'm not able to see it right now. So hopefully others can, um, you know, go ahead and uh, share. And, and Michael, if you don't mind jumping in as needed to, um, you know, let me know if there's a particular question or we can cover them at the end of today's session. So let's go ahead and get started. So um, as Antonio mentioned, uh, from compliance in the classroom, certainly things you learn to compliance in the street. Here's some, um, there's seven key lessons we're going to cover today. So. Um, just a, a quick outline. Uh, I'll do some quick introductions. It's good for you to know why I'm giving you this guidance, my background, um, and I'm, I'll do a very short, very short commercial on Tavor so you can kind of understand the perspective that I'm coming from. Uh, secondly, uh, we'll talk about compliance and why it matters. Um, let me go ahead and uh, kind of do a little spoiler alert. It's a lot about money. So <laughs> hopefully you'll see uh, some, you know, you'll, you'll understand why. Uh, then we'll jump into some of the seven real-world challenges that um, you know I think are probably the, the most important things for uh, you, you to be aware of. And then lastly, we'll lastly we'll jump into some Q and A uh, and wrap up there. So, all right, uh, moving on. Uh, so I guess you can see me. So there's uh, probably I don't know a little better picture, worse picture. I don't know of me. Uh, where did I start? I actually cut my uh, teeth back in the mid '90s uh, at the Department of Defense. Uh, I used to work for the DISA Defense Information Systems Agency. At that time, we were doing uh, mock pen tests of different bases and other things, uh, an incident response center for the Department of Defense. Um, from there, I actually got out of the federal space and uh, went into the commercial space uh, and spent the early part of my career dealing with uh, some of the web application security. Web applications were just coming online within the banking industry, uh, as well as I spent a, a significant amount of my time dealing with folks in media, manufacturing, healthcare, and helping them through um, their cybersecurity issues. 
What's interesting, back in those days, they didn't actually have compliance frameworks. So you're just doing what at that point was best practices. Um, so the first half of my career, I really spent uh, doing, I'd call the, the threat services for us. Um, that is doing the penetration testing, web applications testing, uh, a lot of social engineering back then, um, as well as working on incidents. Um, we'd be brought in if uh, someone was broken into to do evidentiary collection and help with testimony and so forth. So that was probably the first decade of my career. Uh, and then I moved over into uh, what I'll call privacy, enterprise risk, and compliance. And this is really the why. Why do organizations need these things? Why do they pay for testers and vulnerability, folks to do vulnerability scans and reach out to incident response organizations? Because there's now formal frameworks, formal compliance requirements. So we'll talk a little bit about what that is, what's ISO, what's HIPAA, PCI, some other terms that you may know or you may not. Uh, prior, uh, previously, I, I've done some uh, publications out there. I present quite a bit these days. Um, so if, uh, back when we used to learn from books, I don't know if these kids, students have books anymore, um, but uh, the Secure uh, Coding by um, Ken Van Wick and Mark Graff, I wrote one of the case studies in there. I did put a tool out there uh, many moons ago, Web Scanner. Interesting, I still get uh, a number of downloads off of that uh, for testing out websites. Um, and then I do set up a board of advisors for a local university here in Virginia. I've got some certifications there, I won't go through that, but that's a little bit about me, a little bit about my background, and so uh, why I'm bringing these stories to you today. Um, a quick commercial about uh, Tavora. I'm actually gonna skip over compliance here because I'm gonna circle back to that uh, in a minute. Uh, enterprise risk management uh, organizations need folks to come in there, uh, design their security programs to help conduct formal risk management exercises of their programs, define policies, strategies, and so forth, so we help with that. Um, we are headquartered in uh, California, so uh, if anyone's been following the privacy rules, uh, CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, uh, there are certain data privacy protections there. Uh, we do have a very strong solutions team that goes out and uh, deploys solutions. Um, there are literally over 200 companies we partner with to get the right kind of firewall, intrusion protection, SIM solution, mobile device management, uh, telemetry information, there's all sorts of solutions out there. And so uh, building a security program requires more than just process, you have to have the right kind of tools behind it. Um, threat management, this is where we have our penetration testers or web applications testers, mobile applications testers. And we actually have a research arm here um, at Tavora under the threat management team. Uh, not only do they do that fun pen testing type activity, but as part of the research, they actually modified a Tesla uh, to turn into a surveillance vehicle where its cameras would be used to uh, do recognition of uh, license plates and faces, and uh, they turned into a thing called a scout product, or project. Uh, it was actually picked up by the FBI and asked if they could use it as part of their training exercise. Some really fun stuff there. On the incident response front, um, we are a PCI forensics investigator. If Vista MasterCard declares a breach, then we're gonna be an organization that helps respond to that um, and figure out what actually happened. So uh, we've got some headquarters. So if anyone's looking for jobs, I always like to use this as a recruiting opportunity. Uh, we've got offices in LA, New York, and I'm reporting here from Fairfax, Virginia. So uh, we're all, always hiring. So getting into compliance. Um, this is really one of the biggest driving factors for organizations. So I want to spend a few moments just time about compliance, and then we'll talk a little bit more stories about it. So if anyone here has dealt with, or um, you know, you go to somewhere where you, you use your credit card. If you use your credit card, that entity is required to be PCI compliant, the payment card industry. So there's a whole set of standards just around that. 
There's uh, standards specifically for healthcare. So within HIPAA, you may have heard of, it's the um, Healthcare Insurance Portability uh, Accountability Act. Um, but there's actually a compliance. There's not, a, a, I'm not HIPAA certified. There's, you can get HITRUST certified. So HITRUST is a certification framework that covers not only HIPAA, but other uh, frameworks as well. So you'll hear me reference uh, HITRUST and HIPAA a couple times during today's session. ISO is an international standards organization. Um, it's been around for uh, quite some time. The current version is still 2012 for uh, the 170, or rather the um, 27001. We also have the, um, the 17020 quality management standard for doing cybersecurity inspections. Um, and so you'll hear me talk about you know, international standards. You'll hear me talk about um, things within FedRAMP, and that's actually where we have an accreditation there. So if you're a cloud service provider and you want to sell your solution to the government, you'll hear me say FedRAMP. It's a very specific set of frameworks that are based upon NIST 853. So I don't know if that's covered in your classroom or your prior studies, but uh, these are all very well-defined frameworks that are the backbone for why companies and how companies build out their security programs. So you'll hear me talk about PCI, think payment cards, high trust healthcare, think of, um, or high trust and HIPAA, think of healthcare records. ISO, think of an international standards that, you know, it's a good idea, the, the best practices out there. Um, and one that's not even on here that we actually are also certified on is uh, within the Motion Picture Association, those that create motion picture content, you get those little green boxes at the beginning of movies. There's actually a, a security standard around that. Um, you know, we're a certified agent there. So all these little micro industries have their own certifications that we'll dive into. So uh, why? Why are we even talking about compliance? Um, at the end of the day, a lot of things boil down to money. So if you are a merchant, you are someone who opens a storefront, uh, you want to serve you're entering into that space, you're entering into that market, guess what, you have to be PCI compliant. So you're gonna take on that PCI compliant obligation so that you're allowed to take credit cards. Um, maybe you're gonna put have compliance matters because you wanna avoid fines. I'm gonna pick on uh, PCI again here for a second. Um, one of the largest fines for not being PCI compliant that came down was a $13 million fine for a particular retailer. So if you don't have your pro uh, programs in place, you will get fined. On the healthcare front, um, I think the current number is for each incident um, occurrence of uh, a breach of not meeting the, the HIPAA requirements, $60,000. I think they did cap it this year at $1.8 million or somewhere around that as a, a, a total for a particular incident uh, of the same type uh, of breach. So, you know, so there, that's, that's going to affect the bottom line, $1.8 million. Um, or something like ISO. Um, you're going you're to take on and become ISO certified because you want to give confidence to your clients. So, hey, why should we do business with this? And when you're looking from a business-to-business -business relationship, you're going to set partnerships, one of the very first things they do is say, hey, are you ISO certified? Do you have a SOC 2 that we can look at? Um, and if you say yes to that, they know that you have a certain level of controls in place, so it allows you to enter that market. So you can sell more stuff. You can avoid paying fines, or you can you know, enter a particular market like PCI or others. So why does compliance matter? Um, it's really you want to earn more money, uh, you want to avoid fines, and, and, and really, you know, be able to sell more to your customers. Um, so here, let's actually jump into the meet-it. We're uh, 13 minutes in, so good time for us to actually start talking about uh, what we're here to learn about. So here are the seven real-world uh, compliance challenges I'd like to share with you. Uh, the, the first one here is, uh, and it transcends beyond information security, but it's certainly one that uh, constantly hits home for us, and that's scope creep. 
Um, you know, why does this happen? Why does scope creep happen within the realm of compliance? Uh, the first, so if you think about it, how does the sales process work? So you have a salesperson that goes out there and says, hey, we're going to do a penetration test, or we're going to evaluate your credit card environment. Um, and they say, okay, great. The salesperson asks some questions. You write up a contract that says, okay, we're going to look at, we're going to interview 10 people. We're going to um, look at 20 systems. And, and that's where all your credit card data is, right? And they say, okay, great. So you get in there and you say, okay, so we write the scope of work to be, you know, again, we're going to visit three locations. Uh, we're going to look at 20 systems. We're going to interview, you know, 10 people. Um, and so you get in there and you say, okay, let me follow where the credit card data is within the environment. How do you take credit card data? Oh, we, we take it through these cash registers. Great. Okay. You take anything over the web? Oh, yeah. Okay. So now this web server that takes credit card information now is in scope. That's called within the PCI realm, your cardholder data environment or your CDE. So whenever you're thinking PCI, you're in here, uh, QSAs, qualified security assessors, I got to say, what's the scope of your CDE? And the challenge is, is sometimes the clients really don't know, or the person you're talking to in that organization doesn't know their own environment. Uh, so we'll go on there all of a sudden and say, hey, do you know that you have credit card in this cloud web server you set up? Or, hey, do you take any credit cards so you're talking to one of the local store managers and say, oh, yeah, they fax stuff in. Or, or we take it over the phone, and once we take it over the phone, we write it down on this piece of paper, we write it down on this piece of paper, we enter it into the computer. It's like, oh, so now there's this whole other data flow stream that's in scope for PCI. Uh, FedRAMP, you know, looking at your data authorization. So FedRAMP is, again, that's when you are uh, a cloud service provider, everything from a, an Amazon down to uh, maybe Blackboard or other applications that are used um, that are servicing the, the federal government. And so you say, okay, where does the government data go? Oh, it stays all here in this cloud environment. So this is a real example we're dealing with right now. Hey, this, this customer we're dealing with, they said, oh, but we happen to copy that government data down to this laptop. Oh, if they copy it down to this laptop, it's no longer just in the cloud. Now all the controls around that laptop need to be evaluated and inspected. Then Miller with high trust, where does that healthcare information go? A lot of times what we see is they didn't realize that they had outsourced something to a third party. Certainly the clouds, the AWSs, Azures, Google Clouds, uh, but or their MSSPs, maybe they've hired a managed security service provider. So what, how do you address scope creep? And you really start with initial proper scoping. If that salesperson's out there, that salesperson must be educated on the right kind of questions to ask to make sure you're getting your arms around whatever environment you're going to mark as compliant. So uh, that's the first thing. If you come into a situation where maybe they're not really sure of how big the environment is, but you're trying to get a contract in place anyway, a strategy is to use time and materials versus a fixed fee billing option. So time and materials is that I'm going to do the I'm going to do work for 200 hours, and we're going to have a bill rate of this. But because we don't know, we can say you know how big that environment is. Let, let's let's use that model versus saying yeah we can get it done for $100,000 or whatever it happens to be. Uh, those that are executing, if you're the person out there doing the assessments. Um, absolutely, this is the most critical. One of the things I do on any one of my uh, uh, analysts, associates, or, or consultants that are working on a particular job, go read the contract. What did we actually sign up for? Did we say we're going to interview 10 people? Okay, let's make sure that it says, okay, we, we don't have to interview 15 or 20 people as part of this process. And certainly set those expectations up early so that there aren't any surprises. Um, and if something does change, and a lot of times environments do morph, or maybe they didn't realize that they had four administrators that you need to interview versus three administrators. I don't know what it is, but uh, the, the what you need to do is 
use contract change orders, or you do a contract addendum of some sort. So make sure you're always operating within the, con the confines of that particular contract. Um, and pay attention to what's in that contract, because at the end of the day, that's what you have to live up to. So scope creep certainly a challenge. Um, there's a, a real-life example here where uh, we're working right now with a client who has um, 25 web applications um, that they need tested in two weeks. <laughs> and it was like, wait a second, how was the scope, to, and, and, and can we get it done that fast? So we'll talk about that in more in a minute. Scheduling. Um, Hopefully this image up here isn't too offensive, but let's talk about the why and then we'll talk about what it is. So the process. When we do our, any compliance, it's going to take on a very similar approach. So it's going to say, all right, let's interview someone. Let's say, how are, you know, as an administrator, let's have a conversation. How do you properly secure it? How do you apply a password policy? How do you have the, the, the updates that are performed to the system? How do you manage your firewalls? What are they configured like? So you have this interview process. Then you collect evidence. You say, okay. Hey, show me an example of how this is done. So we'll collect a bunch of evidence, a bunch of, a bunch of different control areas, whether or not it's from access control to how does their incident response program work to how are they doing change management activities. So we'll have all these interviews uh, across the organization that relate to the makeup of their security program. We'll then say, collect that evidence, show me examples of how this works. We'll do analysis on that, say, okay, do they do and have the, the controls in place or do they not? Then they we write a report. So there's a process that takes time. These are typically, you know, from our perspective, it can be uh, as short as a three-week engagement to maybe a you know two, three, four, five-month process. Depends on how big the environment is and what the client needs. There's a saying that uh, one of my bosses mentioned a long time ago, and so I'll, I'll give him, you know, it, this isn't my terminology, but uh, nine women. Or I mean, people, I don't know what the, the gender appropriate to comment these days is, but nine women can't make a, a baby in one month. Um, there's a process there. So what happens is the clients will have fixed deadlines for their certifications. We'll do a PCI assessment. They get a, what's called a report on compliance, and it's good for one year. So they're coming up on that due date, so you have to plan backwards to say, okay, if this thing's due January 1, you need to start long enough before it. Um, well, what happens when the client says, oh, I'm on vacation, we, we can't, yeah, I can't do the interviews yet. It's going to push the project to the right. And so when it does that, it's going to push the deliverable to the right. And so um, we'll say, oh, just, we can put some more resources on it, can't we? And there are some times where you can add some additional resources, but there is a method to it. There's a process to it. And you can't always do task three before you do task two or task one. So that, that method, so... You know, the, the challenge here is people are going to say, can I get it done faster? Can I just throw more bodies at it and get it done? And um, the answer is not, that's not always the case. So one of my real strong recommendations here is avoid firm dates and contracts. So don't say you're going to get the guarantee to get this thing done by a certain date. What we do is we put from the contract signature date plus X months, plus X weeks, whatever it is, to do a uh, from project kickoff, plus dates versus saying we're guaranteed to get this project done by January 1st. Absolutely, if you're in the process of scoping these out. So as you become a, a, a consultant and you're in there working, the sales team's gonna say, hey, Jeremiah, hey, Bob, hey, hey whoever, um, how long does it take to get this work done? Build some extra time into that plan um, and certainly set deadlines. And when the client misses the deadlines, this is something we get all the time on the PCI side, is if they don't give us that evidence, that task to collect that evidence, but yet their report is due in two weeks, guess what? It's going to be late, and it's not our fault 
if you can't provide that information. So scheduling, probably one of the most important things to be aware of. It's, again, not super infosec specific, but super critical to the information security process and the compliance process. Number three, defensive interviewees. Um, and this is really a, a problem I see. So again, we talked about the process. What's the process? You, you, you interview someone, you collect evidence, you then go ahead and do your analysis and your reporting. Um, so you're gonna bring in a poor system administrator, and maybe he's or she is new to her job, and you're gonna start asking questions. How do you do your job? What do you, do? you know, explain to me this. How does this work? They may take that as being an interrogation, and you don't wanna make an interrogation because good people skills here. And so the idea is don't, people don't wanna feel like they're not doing their job right, and when you're, how you approach having that conversation, having that interview with that individual, you want to make sure that you're setting the tone, setting the stage, and, and making it so it's a cooperative conversation. The minute they, they start getting defensive, they'll clam up and you won't get the information you need out of them. So what's my, um, what's my strategy here? Certainly don't make an interrogation. Be friendly. Open up with some chit chat. You know, you know explain, hi, I'm here. We're, we're going through this process, and, and we're just looking to get some of the insights from you. Uh, number two, um, ask open-ended questions. Don't ask those yes or no's. Those become opportunities for them to say, yep, nope. Ask them questions to say, explain to me how. Can you tell me more about this? So asking an open-ended question will let you get more information from that person. And a lot of people want to tell what they do. This is how I do it. But the moment you say, well, do you do this? And if they say no, then they'll have that, you know, a claim, they'll start to clam up a little bit. Um, Number three on this list here, uh, don't give nonverbal indicators. And this is one that I actually absolutely teach my associates, uh, our analysts that are they're joining us on these interviews. Um, so uh, when was the last time that administrator password was changed? And they say, oh, well, we haven't changed that in, in, in three years. Uh, and all of a sudden the associate will crunch up their face real tight and have a, like a little sour look on their face saying, ooh, that's not good. You don't want to have those nonverbal indicators of right and wrong because you don't want to get them to be defensive. So say, okay, you know, you, you just work through that process. Uh, sometimes, uh, the fourth bullet here, uh, reframing the, the context of the question, no, we do not have this in place, and say, okay, great, let's talk about it this way. What do you need to do your job right? Use this opportunity to say, we don't have these things in place, but we need more resources. We need more investment in our programs. It's okay to say we don't have multi-factor authentication on this portion of our network because they haven't paid for the licenses. Okay, if it comes out in a compliance report that this is required and they don't have it in place, hey, now all of a sudden they, uh, they're going to get money to meet their compliance requirement. All of a sudden it's an opportunity to build out the program. I think Rahm Emanuel from uh, Illinois, the mayor of Chicago, said, you know, never waste a good uh, crisis. Um, so it's the same sort of thing. Reframe that question. Uh, certainly relate and say, you know, you can, non-disclosure agreements is, is a critical part of, um, you know, your, your clients are entrusting you with this information. You're learning about how they've built their security programs. Um, but you can, but so you don't want to say, oh, this other company, this is how they do it. But you can say, yeah, I've run into other customers who have the same problem where they're not doing this particular activity. Make them feel like they're not alone. Um, a lot of times, a lot of companies have the exact same types of problems. So the more you can say, oh, yeah, I've talked to five other customers this year that have the same problem, they'll be more open up. Uh, and this last one is really actually we had a, um, a particular client who had just a very aggressive um, uh, uh, interviewee that we're talking about and was actually just going and talking um, down to our, our, our 
a resource on site. And so it actually turned into an, H, an HR issue, and we reported it back in, um, I don't know if it was a, a gender thing. We had one of our females on our side, and he was just being belittling her. So, you know, at the end of the day, if you, it, it, when all else fails, um, you know, people have to be held accountable for how they treat other people. So uh, raise it up, and there's certainly a way to address that. Uh, conflict of interest. This is kind of an easy one. Um, can you do work fix a customer, make them compliant, and then audit your own work. Should you do that? Um, I will tell you in certain frameworks, you absolutely cannot do that. If you're going for your ISO certification, you can't help as a, a, a consultant advisor go out there and help build that program for them and then come back and be the ISO lead auditor to assess them and say, yep, you're now all uh, certified. Um, that is also true with FedRAMP, FISMA, um, CMMC, I know I haven't talked about that one yet. That's the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. That's if you are a subcontractor within the Department of Defense space. It's a new certification that they're in the process of rolling out. So uh, anyone who's excited about working with a DOD, uh, that's certainly something that uh, you know you want to pay attention to. We are and have applied to become a, a, a CMMC, what they call C3PA auditors, Certified Third Party Assessment Organization. And in that case, we cannot go into there, advise a client, help them build a program, and then turn around and, and audit our own work. That, that would be a conflict of interest. So what do you do? How do you deal with situations? Well, you, you build your network of friends and partners. So you may have formal partners where you refer things over to, or you may have informal partners that you refer stuff off to. But uh, you have to be aware certain compliance frameworks do have um, limitations on doing assessing your own work. Uh, interestingly enough, um, within PCI, we can do the pen tests and we can do the assessments of them as long as we've shown divisional uh, independence within our own, our own organization. So we're able to validate an assessment done by a different department because our structure is isolated and we've got different reporting teams. So each framework's a little bit different, um, but certainly something to be aware of from a compliance perspective. Um, internal politics, oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> this, again, goes way beyond uh, just information security. Uh, there's some lessons here. Uh, but as far as the things that we've seen, um, there have been turf battles. Hey, we're going to stand up our own shadow IT. They're trying to, you know, they don't trust the centralized IT, especially when you get to bigger organizations, enterprise organizations. Um, and so realize that you just don't want to engage in those internal politics. Uh, and, and so, you know, we hear people saying, oh, well, this person doesn't, you know, or is trying to bypass this and bypass that. And so you end up hearing different bits of gossip over time. Um, but how do, you, how do you address that? So my three keys to strategy is very straightforward. One, um, just do good work. At the end of the day, do a good job with what you're trying to, uh, you know, the compliance framework you're there, have honest interviews, honest evidentiary collection processes, uh, and, and do honest reporting. Two, don't engage in the gossip. Um, that happens. There are people that like, to, oh, I did the person told me this about this, and it's like, don't engage in that. So one of the things that I've, I've taught my our associates and analysts are you know, definitely uh, avoid that. And this, this is just, just good, good old-fashioned common sense. Be respectful to everyone. You never know if that administrative assistant, uh, the, the, the guy or gal that's sitting on the front, you know, they may be the daughter of or son of a, you know, a VP there. Um, they may have the trust of someone who's very important. You just always be respectful to everyone, um, especially when you're, you know, every, every time you're coming on site. And that will help you navigate some of those internal politics. So that's just good standard practice. Uh, dynamic environments. Oh, gosh, this is a, a, certainly a good one. So 
Uh, you come in there, you do an assessment, you do a compliance, you find a gap, um, you put it in the report, and then you present the final report at the end of this two, three-month process to the customer, and it's like, oh, that's not true. Um, well, yeah, it was when we, we, we assessed it three months ago. Um, the environment has changed. The environment has morphed. See, look, it, it doesn't look that way now. So, um, and, and why does that happen? It's because, uh, one, the individual that you may have interviewed didn't know or, or they discovered something after the interview. Say, okay, show me all the repositories of all the people who had awareness training. Oh, I forgot to include the people in this other business unit over here in Europe, and maybe they didn't have um, the, the security awareness training that they should have. Um, more often than not, um, an administrator is maybe um, change something in the environment. Um, and sometimes that's okay. Um, if you're doing a penetration test and you're, you're on site and all of a sudden you find that there's a gaping hole within their organization, um, we, we typically stop, call them up and say, hey, I'm looking at social security numbers right now. <laughs> and what they're going to do, they're going to fix the environment. Um, but you want to be able to report back that you found this really neat vulnerability in their environment, although they've already fixed it. So how do you deal with that? Um, the first thing here is always collect your, a lot of screenshots. Um, you're out there doing it, you're talking to someone, you're looking at a configuration, um, you're interviewing someone, um, take very good notes, copious notes. Um, I always tell my folks, so who did you talk to? When did you talk to them? What was that exactly said? So uh, you think it's important to take uh, notes in class, it's mo even more important to take uh, notes and, and good notes uh, when you're out in the field working on a compliance project because it's gonna come back to who said what? When? Is this the case of how that security compliance was at a particular time and date? So um, certainly something to, to be uh, to pay attention to. The dynamic environments. Yeah, it's uh, make sure you, you be on the lookout for that and always document your work. Uh, and then lastly, um, we're coming in on uh, ethics and responsible reporting. Um, and this is really interesting. Um, I mentioned before, what happens if you're doing a penetration test and all of a sudden you see evidence of a prior breach? Um, what happens if you are testing and all of a sudden you come up with a brand new vulnerability, this has, happens with uh, our team all the time, that's never been published before? You've discovered a new way, a new memory, memory dump, or so, we've actually got a blog post on our website that actually outlines some of the things that we found. Uh, we were finally able to, to present on those. Uh, what do you do if you see something illegal? Wow, what happens if you see things like you know, porn, child porn on a computer, you know, something that's really, you know, how do you report this up? So there's going to be, so, you're just like, I've seen something I don't think I should have seen, what do you do? So um, certainly you want to go out there and um, if you see indications of a prior breach, you stop, you escalate, you look at the contract, you communicate to the client, know what's going on. Um, if you find a new zero day out there, and there's a new way to break into this technology that's never been published before. Do you go running to the manufacturer to share with them this new way to break into this new, their technology? Or does by virtue of you doing this work for this client, the, in, the client owns that intellectual property? Go back and look at the contract, look at the legal team. You may want to tell some big vendor out there that they've got a, an issue, but you have to work through who owns the work product of your activities. Uh, so. What I say is certainly make friends with the legal team in any of your careers. You know, you'll figure out who they are very quickly um, so that you have a, a, someone to escalate to. If you see something illegal, uh, you're certainly going to raise it within your own organization and seek counsel on how to raise it um, into the client environment. So 
um, and, and maybe it's even reporting, you know, work with your legal team. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't want to give any legal advice here on the phone, but uh, you know, understand the contract. Uh, absolutely keep the clients informed. Uh, but if there's something there that you've seen something illegal, contact your legal team and they'll give you some uh, good guidance there. So um, just as a quick recap today, these are seven things that uh, I think are really, really important. Um, and they'll certainly apply outside of compliance. Uh, but these are certainly challenges within compliance that will make you an even better consultant. So from uh, understanding and how to manage scope creep, uh, dealing with fluctuating schedules, uh, addressing defensive interviewees and those that sometimes uh, claim up how to open up those conversations, uh, put yourself in a position to avoid any conflict of interest. Don't sign yourself up for a contract that says you're going to be able to help them build something and assess something if it's a compliance framework doesn't allow for it. Certainly, there's, uh, you know, politics exist everywhere, um, but uh, just do a good job, um, be nice to people, and you'll avoid most of it. Uh, dynamic environments, uh, you know, take evidence, collect your screenshots, be sure that uh, you've got uh, all the evidence you need, and then be an ethical and responsible person out there. Um, and this is probably, while it's last, I don't know, it may be even the most important. Um, as a cybersecurity professional, you're going to have access to the most sensitive information within organizations. You will know where their security vulnerabilities are, where their flaws are, where their repositories of social security numbers, where credit cards are, um, health records. You're going to want to make sure that you are doing the right thing by protecting their information. And when you're brought onto an organization, trust is everything. So make sure that as you make decisions and you work through, you know, the different jobs you have, um, that you are an ethical person because it takes a career to build it. It takes a moment to lose it. And so continue to do the right thing. So uh, that's my presentation today. I'm going to open up for a couple questions. I don't know if anything came up there. Um, I don't have uh, questions uh, that I'm seeing come through, but um, Michael or uh, Antonio, maybe you guys can you know, relay off any questions that uh, may be asked of the team here. Thanks, Jeremy. This is, this is Jerry. I don't see a, a question come up yet, but I'll just remind the class that if they uh, do have questions, pop down to the uh, Q&A section and uh, type them up and we'll, uh, we'll get them answered for you. Perfect, bud. Well, I guess yeah. looking at seeing if there's any there, um, I want to just remind, uh, we are always hiring, so I turned this into a recruiting session. Never waste a good opportunity. Um, I know you probably have some formal career development, uh, but uh, if you can find me on LinkedIn and other places, uh, we are recruiting. See, anyone uh, have any particular questions? And if no one's brave enough to ask a question in this forum and you have a follow-up question, uh, please reach out to Antonio, Jerry, Michael. Mike, they'll, they'll certainly know how to get in touch with me to have a, a follow-up question. So mm -hmm. um, please, please do ask. Hopefully I didn't put everyone to sleep here. Mm -hmm. uh, comment, thank you for the presentation. Oh, you guys are uh, very welcome. Uh, thank you very much, uh, everyone, for your time. Um, is there any follow-up uh, homework assignments, Antonio? I guess you can um, you find your, uh, you know, you, there's a, white, a paper that you're supposed to write up or a paragraph or something. Maybe you can. Yeah, they, they will have to write a paragraph and upload it on Brightspace. I guess I guess I can ask you something. Maybe then students can follow. Uh, so I can do a very generic question. So. We have seen like maybe big companies with certifications 
still uh, getting exploited, getting data stolen. So for the future, uh, what do you think we should improve? Like, is, is the problem because the certifications are not strict enough? Is the problem that uh, they are not enforced correctly? Or is the problem that companies, they, they work around them? What's That's your, a great question. Uh, That's an absolutely fantastic question. It's, it's, it's a very generic question. But it's a great question. Um, why are you compliant and still getting breached? Um, so being compliant with a particular framework um, is not going to guarantee security. Um, having all the latest tools, investments, and money. Let me tell you, J.P. Morgan Chase, they spend $1 billion on information security, yeah. have you know, several hundred uh, experts within their own organization, and they suffered couple years ago, uh, a breach. And they have, you know, not endless, but seemingly endless uh, resources to build out the, the best programs that are out there. Um, when you're dealing with compliance, um, it's good to understand that they're trying to create a floor, a, a minimum level of uh, security requirements to achieve their mission for whatever industry they're in. Uh, when you're dealing with retailers, for example, um, you've got uh, the folks with uh, maybe a little corner store, convenience store, all the way up to a big, you know, uh, online retailer. You've got to establish certain controls are in place that maybe will scale to all those types of key stakeholders. And so you have to, you know, is it going to have every and exact perfect configuration requirement inside the compliance? No, it's not. Does it help elevate the game that if you meet that level of compliance that you've got a defined baseline for at least what's an, a known standard across that organization? Yes. So. Uh, compliance frameworks do a really good job of setting an expected baseline or configuration for an organization. Are they bulletproof? Absolutely not. Um, it just takes one bad employee doing something, you know, copying a file that they, uh, he or she shouldn't have copied, plugging it in, leaving it on a USB drive, taking it home with them that they shouldn't, or someone being malicious. And, you know, there is, you know, uh, things that happen out there, people are, you know, actively trying to exfiltrate information. So whether or not it's malicious, uh, whether or not it's accidental, um, you, you can't prevent, prevent everything from happening. But the idea is, can I put enough controls in place to protect the obvious, the most basic requirements, and even elevated requirements? Um, so yeah, it, it, those that are required for the DOD are going to be more strict than those are, you know, maybe within size TCR card business. So there's different, and that's why there's different compliance frameworks out there. They, they're designed to meet different um, industry needs. I guess they, they are, they're different, they're based on what the industry, which kind of data the industry is interacting with or what the, what, what the industry wants to achieve. Like, of course, I know there is something for medical uh, or something for credit cards. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, each industry is a little bit different. Uh, I, I, I echo someone put on here, you know, my experience of frameworks only creates a false sense of security. That can be very true. Um, organizations like to, um, like I said before, it comes down to money. They only want to spend enough money to meet the checkbox requirement if that's the minimum, minimum obligations. I will say it depends on the industry. Uh, financial industry tends to spend more money on their security programs. They have more uh, resources available to them. So they'll go above and beyond the minimum requirements, things required by FFIEC, uh, financial systems within you know, the PCI space and others. 
but um, it depends. If you're a defense contractor, you're going to have to protect that information that you know could be very, very important. It could be top secret. There could be ITAR information, could be QE data, uh, controlled unclassified information. So even unclassified information has to have proper protections in place. It just depends on um, you know what industry are industry you're in, and the way I approach every single compliance assessment, and, and the way everyone should is follow the data. Where does the data go? Whether it's healthcare information, credit card information, defense QE data, um, just follow the data, and then that will help you understand what your scope of uh, trying to protect that client is. We've got a question. Uh, can you read it or, or should I read it? Uh, which one is this? Have you ever come across an instance where different com conflict with each other? Yes. Uh, so um, they don't typically um, overtly conflict. Um, compliance standards usually set the floor. So if you, um, we do a lot of times it's called a unified um, compliance uh, approach. So let's say they have to meet uh, SOC and PCI and they're going for their high trust to protect their healthcare information. Um, Yes, there are different requirements that exist within each of those frameworks. Um, and what's really interesting is following data. Where your credit card data footprint is within your organization may be different than where your healthcare footprint is. But you've got one set of information security standards that are, are built to support both frameworks. So um, there, are there are times when you, know, you may have met the minimum on one, but didn't meet the minimum on the other. And so you have to maybe elevate your program, your information security policies, the, the, the process by which you do your monitoring, the process by which how often you're looking and do reporting. Uh, reporting is a good example. Uh, within GDPR, you have 72 hours to report breaches. Um, that's not the same for PCI, so you've got a little bit of a different approach there. Uh, also, so specifically, is, is there uh, a conflict with compliance? In certain countries, you can't videotape people in certain places. But PCI requires you to have videotape coverage of certain entrances and exits to the cardholder data environment. And so what they've added inside some of the frameworks, it says, unless otherwise prohibited by law, this is what you do. So um, yeah, so you, you kind of have to handle those on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, and the other thing that we see within compliance frameworks is this concept of compensating controls. If you can't meet the way the control is designed and written out, can you meet the intent of the control by designing something in place that is equivalent, although it may be an alternative implementation? And so, and that's just working with your um, authority um, that, that, that manages that practice. We just had that, uh, we submitted some information over to the defense industrial base computer science on behalf of a defense contractor that didn't have split tunneling enabled for their VPN users. But they had an alternate solution that, that, that helped protect that environment. So hopefully that answered your question. Uh, uh, Jeremiah, this, this is Jerry. There's also a couple of questions I think I'd assign to you uh, that are in the Q&A section. Yeah. You may see some in your chat, which we don't see. So um, you, you might check both of those spots if you can see. If not, I'll read the Q&A questions. If go ahead, you can see the Q&A questions that have come up there. I'm trying not to, I guess I can stop sharing my screen, but go ahead if you don't mind, Jerry, reading it. Yeah, the first one I think that's uh, in the queue is, is, do you think establishing and defining expected security awarenesses in the work environment for all employers is necessary? And how to accomplish that from your point of view? 
Yeah, I don't know that there's a single framework that doesn't have that as a concept. Uh, security, the, the human is the last mile. They're touching the data. Uh, and sometimes yeah, they're the last mile, and sometimes they're the first line of defense. So I'm kind of con contradicting myself there. But if they're the ones that are integrating and, and touching this sensitive data from, and it's even required. If you go to a retail, uh, there should be someone there that, if you, they touch a credit card, they've been trained, or they, by compliance, are required to be trained on how to, how to look at that, make sure they've looked at uh, the point of sale terminals, make sure they haven't been tampered with. Um, to those that are operators on the phone that collect information or those that manage websites that have information going through them. Um, absolutely, I think um, security awareness training is critical. But the most effective programs I've found for companies is when they can take their information security program and put enough of a twist on it that the employee can take home some knowledge and apply some of that knowledge to their home environment. Don't use that same password across all of your banking and maybe your TikTok application and maybe your other uh, devices and applications for uh, Grubhub or somewhere else. Because if you're using the same password, I'll tell you, that's one of the fastest ways that if it, you get one account compromised, people are going out there and start spidering against other platforms that you have that same username and password. That's how they pivot within organizations. But as an individual, I know that I shouldn't be doing that with my banking and my utilities and my Grubhub account or whatever it is. And once you relate it to, oh, yeah, because if they get in and they change it, you know, they can capture credentials here, they can go all these other places. Oh, I, I get that now. So make it relatable. So um, how do I make this actionable so that they can understand it and how it can improve uh, the security of their personal life? So I've seen those as the most effective. Also, I'm very much a fan of positive rewards. So um, people, we talk about not only awareness of information security to what they do, but also reporting incidents. And so I work with building out teams when we build out incident response programs. If someone reports something, reward them. Give them a, a little trinket or something. Thank you for bringing this to our attention. Make that a good experience, not reporting an incident as a bad experience. So find positive reinforcement actions uh, within your staff. Cool. Any question there? I have another one here, um, Jeremiah. It says, looking at compliance for a smaller company or startup that generally relies on cloud and has rapidly changing infrastructure, where do you begin and what do you look out for? Oh, great question. So um, I'm going to use AWS as an example because they're a very well-known cloud infrastructure. Um, and those bigger organizations, whether it's uh, Microsoft, uh, Azure, uh, Google, um, or, or Amazon, they've got, so if you're an AWS user, you have an account, I highly recommend one of the very first things from a compliance perspective is you log into your AWS account and click on artifacts. They have a whole service module listing out all the 57 different compliance frameworks that they already adhere to. Now, just because they've met the compliance frameworks doesn't mean that, oh, I'm using it, I meet all of them. But there are certain things you can, quote, inherit from a cloud provider that already has met and has that compliance seal. So go into AWS, click on artifacts, you'll see all the ones there, and they actually have a, a customer mapping and roles and responsibility matrices built in there. They'll say, for physical security, Amazon's got your back. They've got the gates, the guards, the guns, the protections of the facilities because you can't control that. But other parts of, the, of compliance frameworks, you do have to come to the table. You have to do your own training of your employees if they have access to information. You have to set up your own access control modules. You have to do all those sort of configure your own firewalls. 
unfortunately, Amazon can't uh, stop you from having a misconfigured S3 bucket and having all of your information spewed out over the internet. And I have one more in the Q&A, and that says, what do you think the best way to avoid DOS attack for a company is? The best way for denial of service attacks? Um, to avoid them, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's – so, yeah, DOS, and you've got distributed DOS attacks. Um, so it depends on what you're hosting out there. Um, there's a lot of um, – uh, CDNs, uh, Cloud Distribution Network Solutions out there. You've got your Cloud Flyers, you've got your Akamai's, and they'll or they'll act as a shield. So they'll replicate your information across their distributed environment. And with each of those solutions, they do have uh, web application firewalls. So if it's a web service that you happen to be putting out there, their scale and size will help prevent against that. So that will deal with more of a resource-based denial service attack. Um, Another type of denial of service attack is from a vulnerability. So uh, certainly make sure that your systems are patched, updated. Um, there are you know, numerous vulnerabilities that will, t you know, with the right sequence of commands um, or the properly crafted packet can, can bring down a particular service, whether or not it's an SSH, an FTP, a, a web service or something else. Um, so make sure you're patched. Um, use uh, good DDoS preventions, all the firewalls have um, some metering that you can put in there if you see too many uh, attacks or, or packets coming. So you can do QoS and quality of service management there to make sure that, uh, you know, one particular access isn't bombarding you. Uh, and, uh, you know, just have good infrastructure to meet your client's demands. So hopefully that answered that question. I don't know if there's anything else in your chat or if Mike sees anything else, but that's the end of the uh, Q&A section that uh, I see. I don't have any of my chat. I think we're right on time. I think we're targeting a, a 20 class wrap up here. So I just want to thank you, um, Antonio, Jerry, Mike, for uh, inviting me to this. And thank you for yeah, the thank you. Uh, hung out and listened to me ramble on. If you have questions, please reach out. One of the best things about building your career in cybersecurity is getting good connections, making friends whether or not it's the professors, the um, other folks, but uh, please reach out if you have any questions. Thank you. Thanks, Jeremiah. Thanks to the folks at Tavora who helped us get this set up. My pleasure. Everyone, have a fantastic day. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.